0: So thank you everybody for attending. Today's session is looking at the impact of global disruption on confidential information and restricted covenants, which is probably quite pertinent particularly for those of us in the UK, where we've just had further disruptions announced this morning by our Prime Minister in terms of what we can and can't do in our normal lives. And we're going to look at three main things this afternoon um, which relate to this. We're going to look at impact on drafting issues in restricted covenants, we're going to look at the impact on enforcement issues of restricted covenants, And we're also going to look at cultural issues within the workplace, which may put a slightly different spin on restrictive covenants, both enforcement, drafting, and also just more generally the concept of them. Before I get on to any of the content, I am delighted to introduce to you our excellent panel of speakers this afternoon. So first of all, we've got Beth Hale, who is one of my partners at CM Murray, an employment and partnership expert advising employers and employees on various different business protection issues, uh, both from the beginning, so the drafting, and right through to the enforcement and the policing side of things. And then we've got Chris Steve, who is managing partner of Fisher Phillips in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, an immediate past co-chair and co-founder of the firm's Employee Defection and Trade Secrets practice group. And he's got an international practice looking at restricted covenant and confidential information and business protection issues around the globe for his clients. And then we've got Joy Deep Hor. is founder and principal of People and Culture Strategies, who are a firm in Sydney, Australia. He is very used to having a very international practice. JoyDeep is a legal and strategic advisor to a huge range of businesses, both domestic and international, with particular expertise in workplace cultural issues. And last but definitely not least, Gavin Mansfield QC, who is head of chambers at Littleton Chambers an employment partnership and commercial barrister with particular expertise in business protection issues, including restricted covenants, team moves and protection of confidential information and extensive high court experience litigating these matters in real life disputes. So we've got quite a lot to cover today. So I want to crack on and really start with looking at that drafting piece. So drafting restricted covenants. So obviously we thought about global disruption. And when we were having a conversation about this panel, we really thought about three main things. One was that Donald Trump potential re-election in November um, and the impact that that might have on global trade and business. The other was Brexit and similarly the impact that that might have on global trade and, and mobility. And the third one is obviously the current pandemic through which we are all living. And so Gavin, how do you think these sorts of issues will come to bear on businesses when they look at drafting covenants and really trying to capture Um, the essence of what it is that they are trying to protect and how do you think that their approach will have to change?
1: Well, Sarah, I think that we've got to look at a time of great change and how our drafting keeps keeps up with that. And drafting employment contracts, drafting restrictive covenants in particular, is always a game of catch-up. We try as much as possible to draft contracts in a way that are future-proofed, that will apply going forward for a period of time. But it's very difficult to do, and there's always something that one hasn't thought of that didn't quite work. So the first thing I think is... This is a time that people need to be reviewing their contracts and be prepared to keep them under review. The second is covenants as much as possible. These days need to be dynamic. And what I mean by that is that rather than saying you shall not do these things, they need to move with the times. So they need to define competing business, for example, by reference to what the employer is doing at the particular time of termination, clients and so on. Uh, competing businesses to be defined in a, a dynamic way and I think the particular challenge at the minute is that particularly the pandemic is accelerating changes on a number of levels so at an economic level I think a lot of businesses are likely to come out of this doing different things because things that people wanted they aren't going to want in the same way and businesses are going to have to start thinking well we'd better do something else that people do need in this environment and so that's going to change the nature of the economic opportunity and what it is the the current employer is doing and what a new competing business might choose to do so that's one thing what do i want to protect against competition with The second thing I think is that um, within businesses, and this is the obvious point, perhaps the way in which we work is changing very much. So there's much more working from home, obviously, as if we need reminding of that in the UK. Now we've been all told, no, don't come back to work, stay at home in a sort of, hokey-cokey approach to um, workplace um, affairs at the moment then we first we stay at home then we go back then we stay at home again that's all changing and also concepts like working time that we see uh, for instance in clauses which say you've got to devote your whole time and attention during business hours to your employer well what does that mean now I mean we've all been working at home probably for the last six months I don't know about you but there's not much distinction between working time and non-working time between our sofas and our laptops and everything else so some of the things we've been used to using as concepts in our covenants aren't really going to work anymore and we've got to start thinking around different ways both one capturing the things we want to protect against do my covenant stop this employee doing the things that I want to stop them from doing? And two, the other side of the equation is my covenant so broad as to be an unreasonable restraint of trade. Have I managed to end up with something that prohibits a whole bunch of things? I've got no justification in prohibiting. I mean, that's always the challenge, but it's particularly challenged now. And I'll just give one example, geography, for example, I know different jurisdictions take a different approach to this. Be interested to see what Chris and Joydeep, thing i mean i've always thought the idea of area limitations geographical restrictions are a bit old-fashioned in many ways given that you know the days of the area sales manager for the east midlands where i come from is a pretty outmoded kind of idea that you've got someone driving around a particular geographical area having only that customer base but now how do we even make those sorts of restrictions work both as to time and as to geography, where we're all working from home, and this is an example of it, isn't it? Where we've got people from the East Coast of the US, from Australia, from the UK, all in this meeting now. If we were doing business together, where, is, where are we carrying on business? Where are the people working from that we're stopping doing things? Where is the place that they're doing business that they need to be stopped? So I think we've got to reimagine a number of those things and really try and define our covenants in a way that captures the essence of the relationships that we're trying to stop using perhaps in some way some new vocabulary about identifying the relationship.
0: Thank you. And that, I suppose, does prompt us to look across Chris at the US, and you know, I think what Gavin says about geography isn't brand new for a lot of us practicing in the UK because that idea has been sort of on its way out for some time, particularly for a number of industries. But I think it's not quite so
2: straightforward with you. I think it's not. And I think it's just sort of a nice illustration of one of the challenges that Gavin identified a minute ago, which is whenever we're writing covenants, we're really writing them not so much for today, but for use five years, maybe 10 years from now, because somebody signs it when they first sign on and they have a tenure with the company. And so, you know, it's, it's this exercise in sort of pre- prediction of what we'll need to protect and what the law may look like, because I think Gavin's right that uh, both the business environment and people's duties or activities seem to evolve much faster than either the common law or our documents. And so it is a bit of a catch-up game. So I think geography is interesting. There are a lot of states around the U.S. and courts that would still think geography is pretty significant when using a full non-compete. I think most locations around the U.S. as to something like a non-solicitation of customers or a non-dealing covenant, people look at that and say, well, the the customers essentially have substituted for geography, right, the extent of the customer list with which you had contact. But for a full non-compete, I think a lot of courts are still looking for proof from the employer that the competitive threat is indeed not geographically bounded. And so I I think while we might look at it and say, wow, the the geographic boundaries of work are breaking down in in some pretty interestingly dynamic ways all over the place, we can't abandon it yet because the case law is not there and and i think you know if we were talking to a judge in michigan today i think a lot of judges might say well uh, yeah this person can operate globally from you know her laptop and kitchen table but really is she and like what is she really covering and i'm not going to give you the full global protection and you know in some states and certainly i know this is true in england and wales you know if you've overreached you know, you may not get the benefit of the court rewriting it for you. A lot, of, a lot of US states will, but some will not. And I know generally England and Wales will not. So I think it's a challenge. Geography is one that you know, I generally advise people you know, we can't quite abandon it yet, you know, except for the very top level or for somebody who is clearly doing geographically unbounded work. Although we routinely abandon it for solicitation covenants.
0: And even if there is a trend, you know, towards abandoning geography or at least like a period in which we might try and argue that it's less relevant. Do you see in the event that let's say you have further Trump administration for the next four years and potentially immigration gets clamped down on, do you see geography becoming more relevant when looking at this in the U.S.?
2: Well, I think it's going to be hard to tell because one of the things, if you, I think if we had all asked ourselves um, nine months ago whether executive global mobility was having an impact on the way we should write and, and enforce covenants. Gosh, we all would have said yes, it's sort of the point of the conference we held two years ago and we were hoping to be holding right right now. Uh, and that global mobility clearly was, was impacting how we're handling and advising uh, companies on covenants. But there's a lot of things going on that are, are dramatically reducing global mobility and it may be different and it may actually slow down I think in the US courts the evolution away from the need for geographic covenants.
0: Thank you. I suppose sticking with that theme, Beth, makes me very sad to say this, but we might have reduced mobility in the EU and in the UK and in and out of the UK as a result of Brexit. And so do you see some challenges there with mobility for the UK and for UK? Yeah, so I think, you know, query whether immigration will actually reduce
3: post-Brexit or whether it will just sort of change in nature in terms of where people are moving from and to. Um, And I think that's post-Brexit as well as post-pandemic when mobility is going to change. It's obviously limited at the moment, but I think that who knows how long that impact will last in terms of the sort of limitations of people moving around the globe. But I think that that might well have an impact and that that we might well be moving back to a more more of a focus on geography and and covenants and having much more similar issues to the US. So that what Gavin very rightly says about the irrelevance of, of geography and covenants or the increasing irrelevance of geography and covenants might become less true.
0: Although we are going to come on later to talk about the increasing use of Zoom and other methods of communication, which kind of might go against that. But but coming on to another thing, so Gavin mentioned in relation to sort of trying to capture the essence of what it is you're trying to protect and the changing nature of business. So someone in this particular pandemic might have been previously, to, to use a very basic and probably not very realistic example, but although I think maybe it was realistic, you might be making automobile cars and then you might suddenly change and make ventilators. And so you might be in a situation where you're prohibited from going to work for a car competitor, but you wouldn't be prohibited from going to work for a ventilator competitor, for example, even though that might have been actually what you've been doing for the last 12 months. And so how does that come to bear on the drafting of covenants and, and the challenges that employers will face?
3: Yeah I think there are a number of points there. I think the first thing is that covenants as you will all know are often drafted on the basis that they prevent the departing employee from doing for x period looking forward anything which they had been doing for y period looking back and that's traditionally allowed for some flexibility in covenants which Gavin referred to which individuals role changes or as they move up through an organisation the covenants don't necessarily need to be revised because of that backward looking period, an individual is only restricted from doing what he or she has recently done or from soliciting clients with whom he or she has recent had recent dealings and so on. So I think in a period of significant disruption like we're seeing now, employees may, as you say, just be engaging in activities that aren't typical for them, aren't typical for the business. They may have been on furlough. I mean, that's unlikely for very senior employees, but not impossible. Or they may have been shoring up the business rather than carrying out their normal activities. Client dealings may have been done in very different ways. Um, and that backward period, that backward looking period, may just not be indicative of what the business is seeking to prevent them from doing looking forward, or may not work to protect the business looking forward. And so, the first thing to think about if you're drafting covenants and sort of to try and take that into account is considering the length of the look back period. So, it's often 12 months, not always, but that's the sort of most common. There's an argument that longer periods might protect against the types of changes we're talking about caused by the kind of short term disruption but you have to obviously take into account the enforceability issues. There was a case, the Norbrook Laboratories and Adair case where a, a non-compete fell down because of a five-year look-back period where between 12 months and five years might be enforceable. I think that there are arguments to be had. Um, and again, I come back to what Gavin's already said about the, that it reinforces the frequent need for covenant renewal, covenant revision, thinking about what um, people are doing, what they, what you want to stop them doing in the future. I mean, it's never popular with employees or employers to keep on revising their covenants. But um, in changing times, I think it is, you know, you, it really increases the need
0: for covenants to be
3: really specific to the to the circumstances.
0: Thank you. I want to go down to the different part of the world and bring in Joy Deep. And I think... The Australian courts in some states have taken a slightly more relaxed approach to covenants, for example, the concept of cascading covenants, which would in fact solve a lot of the issues that we're talking about here, which is where, you know, you don't know how long the lookback period should be, or you don't know how long you need to protect something for, because of the changing nature of the business. Um, have you seen in Australia, in terms of the market, similar trends to that which we've been discussing, or have, has there been less challenges for employers in Australia as a result of the pandemic?
4: It's a, it's a really interesting question, uh, Sarah, and I think it's a fascinating discussion because uh, my uh, sense at the moment of the Australian market is that this is actually fairly low down on the list of priorities for employers. I think for employers in Australia at the moment, there's so much uncertainty. Uh, there's so many question marks around long-term viability. Um, the government scheme here that's been introduced to, as, as effectively a life support, which is known as JobKeeper, uh, here is going to change radically after 30th of September. So these are the kinds of things I think that employers are far more concerned about. And interestingly, the activity that we've seen in this, let's call it the business protection space around covenants and restraints, has far more been on the question of enforcement and when an employer such as um, a leading professional services firm that let go a couple of hundred people a few weeks ago and then took umbrage with them, a few of them going to work for clients of that particular professional services firm and that that generated some some interesting discussion and debate (laughs) Uh, on that particular issue. But I, I wanted to just come back to one of the points that, that Gavin made, which I, I think is very, very pertinent, which is, um, and endorse everything that's said around the, the discussion of geography, uh, recognising, of course, that geography in an Australian context is um, is interesting in itself when you think that the, the landmass between you know, Sydney and Perth is it's a five-hour plane journey, which is with London to Moscow, right? So um, if you are restraining someone from, from working in, in all of Australia and you take into consideration the, the lifestyle changes that that person would have to make if they were to relocate, all of which contribute to reasonableness, et cetera. It, it's actually still talking about restricting within your own, your own country. But, but putting that to one side, I think that the more interesting issue, which will probably play out here and I imagine globally in the next six to 12 months, is what is actually the, I mean, we talk strongly here in Australia about the legitimate business interest that the employer has the right to protect. Now, that legitimate business interest is evolving at a rate of knots. Um, and I know we'll talk later on about uh, work practices and what risks that involves, but is there even a legitimate business interest that an employer has around their ways of working? And I know we talk about, we talk about the perils of working from home and, you know, Zoomification and whatever else, but is there actually some kind of proprietary interest around teamwork around the way an organisation builds its working practices in this brave new world that creates a sense of IP and, and critical um, confidential information or critical protectable work interest. And I don't see employers, certainly here in Australia, that have turned their mind to, hang on a second, let's, let's redraft um, or let's recalibrate what we classify as confidential information. I think most of the interest around confidential information is what's happening with our confidential information when... We're losing visibility over how it's been dealt with. So, um, a lot of similarities with issues that have been discussed, and I think it'll be an area that'll play out a lot more actively in the upcoming months.
0: Um, zoomification. You say we talk about. I mean, it's a new one for me. So amazing word, introducing us to that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting point because actually, as people innovate uh, the way that they work. To what extent does that potentially become something, as you say, that becomes unique to them, that becomes protectable? And I, I guess we've not really been in many circumstances over the last couple of decades where we've been forced to innovate in quite the way that people might be trying to do now. We want to now just move on to the next section of the three main key sections we're going to talk about, which is due with enforcement. And a few of the issues have already been picked up and um, have been mentioned briefly. And really, we see this as dividing into sort of three main issues. There's the policing of covenants. So, you know, how do employers effectively know what's going on and, and how where do they get their intel and how that might be impacted by this current disruption that we're seeing? There's the uh, related evidence gathering. And then there's the final point about, you know, actually enforcing these restrictions through the courts. So to start off with thinking about policing and evidence gathering, as people have retreated, I suppose, to their back bedrooms or their living rooms to do their jobs, obviously the employer has reduced the visibility over physically what people are doing. Beth, how do you think that that will impact when an employer may need to be trying to work out what an employee's up to or trying to figure out if someone is or isn't about to breach their covenant or their confidential information obligation. Yeah, well, I think it's an interesting one because I think it's possible that that kind of lack of ability for employers
3: to spot those soft signs of unusual activity, those soft signs that someone might be looking to leave, might well actually increase the litigation in the area because then they won't know about things until it's too late and someone's already gone and competing. You can't see any anymore someone nipping out to a breakout room to take a call, taking calls with the office door closed, those sort of popping out at odd times of the day for mysterious appointments. I mean even printing large volumes of documents which people you know sometimes do as a sort of on, on the way out. All that can be done much more easily without being spotted, without being tracked. They can, you know, calls can be made from personal phones. There's all, you know, those sort of soft signs, as I say. And if that early detection mechanism is less reliable, I think there's less scope then for a sort of quiet chat or a discreet shoring up of those relationships, or indeed for starting that detective work, that evidence gathering at an early stage, if your concern is mainly about protecting the remaining business relationships or protecting the remaining business rather than retaining an employee who's, who's already disaffected. So I think it, I think there is potential for more cases in those circumstances to be driven to to litigation or to a dispute where you can't sort of stop it at that early stage.
0: And Joydeep, do you think that employees in that context, you know, they might not even consciously be thinking about this, but they might feel a little bit more invincible if they are actually up to stuff they shouldn't be, preparing to compete, downloading databases, because they're not in that office environment, they're not sitting there in their normal workplace, in their normal environment with their boss across the corridor. Do you think that is relevant and will cause problems for businesses?
4: I think that the essential question in all of this is what are our people thinking and feeling at any given point in time? And my view about restrictive covenants and restraints and the activities and options that employers have to force are actually coming at the issue from a point in time after which the horse has well controlled evolved. The, the critical question, I think, for employers now, as I say, is what are their people thinking and feeling? And in this current environment, I don't think this would be unique to Australia or the UK or anywhere, the, the first word that comes to mind to characterise the environment is uncertainty when I mean, you talk about the changes that were announced by your Prime Minister um, earlier today. It's a chopping and changing approach, and that's happening in, in numerous jurisdictions. That moving sands approach to the political solution, the economic solution is contributing to a huge amount of uncertainty for people. That is being, I think, exacerbated by a lack of clarity that employers, the fact that they're not providing the necessary clarity to their employees around the the, the future. And a lot of that's understandable because they simply don't know. But what happens in times of uncertainty is employees will go one of two ways. They will either feel the need to get that certainty by taking more responsibility for their career and their lives, or they will move into a more passive mindset and look at what they have and perhaps just say, well, this is not a time to be rocking the boat. Let me just not look to progress things. Let me not worry about my career progression, et cetera, and let me just see how it pans out. Where the employee is feeling agitated to the point that they want to be doing something, absolutely it is the case. employers are going to be far more at risk in terms of not being able to get a sense of the looks on people's faces when they're coming to work or they seem distracted or they're disappearing for a couple of hours in the middle of the day and you you know you apprehend that they might be going for interviews and all of those things that intuitively are observed when a person is working uh, from their main office environment or working environment but how and i know again we'll come back to some some proactive solutions and strategies for employers but the, the actions that an employee is going to take is going to be dictated by what they're feeling and ultimately what they're feeling is going to be influenced in part by what the employer can do, but there's also limitations on that because a huge amount of what they're feeling is triggered by external environment and issues that are completely unrelated to their to their work um, and also influenced by other things that are happening in their life, I mean, what's happening with the people that you live with, etc. cetera. Just one, one small anecdote, I mediated a grievance that an employee, fairly junior employee, had against their manager a couple of weeks ago. And, and one of the, the major sources of agitation for this employee in circumstances where both the employee and the manager were working from home for a long period of time was that uh, the employee was highly critical of her manager for just dialing her in for a Teams call without giving her any advance notice that she was doing so. Now, my question when I heard that was, oh, we're we talking about, you know, out-of-hours contact, are we are talking about late-night kind of Teams calls? And she said, no, no, we're talking about normal working hours at Teams calls. And the manager was sort of incredulous, saying, well, but hang on a second, we're trying to replicate how we would be working if we were working together. And the employee's perspective on that is, yes, but we're not working together. And the reality is the way I'm working at home is I'm cohabiting with five or six other people and we're sharing a desk and whatever else, and it's not that easy for me to take a call. It's a very small example of how what's happening in this current environment is contributing to to people thinking and feeling things that in the ordinary course of work they just wouldn't be thinking or feeling. And so when we talk about people departing and setting up their own businesses or going and working for a competitor, often a lot of which is triggered by that resentment and hostility or feeling that you're not being respected, there's a lot of that simmering away for a lot of people at the moment, and I think that's a real watch out for employers.
0: Yeah, and I guess even made even harder because you say it's a real watch out, but how can they watch out for it? It's much harder from their perspective to watch out for it as well. So, yeah, it's a challenging time. I mean, Chris, what do you think in terms of, you know, thinking more about technical enforcement? And obviously, you know, we all know that one of the key things is to move quite quickly, particularly if there's been confidential information breaches or theft to try and preserve documents, data, evidence. What do you think could be impacted by the Zoomification, to borrow Joy Deep's expression, of the workplace and, you know, people, rather than plotting things on WhatsApp, which people used to think was a safe way to do it, but people starting to plot things on Zoom or on Teams. And do you think that's going to be an issue going forward for evidence gathering and ultimately enforcement?
2: I do. I think it's going to be very interesting how companies start gathering the evidence uh, for the sort of pre-planning, uh, which is which is so common now. In some ways, you know, it may be it may be exactly the same in that. For I'd say the last 10 years, we have seen a steadily increasing prevalence of the key evidence, of course, being in people's text messages or, you know, I mean, it's not even actually that much in personal email anymore, although that, you know, years ago, that was kind of a new place to find it, right? And at one point, you know, chat rooms, you know, know, could you track what happened in some chat room uh, used to be an interesting place? And, you know, these days we sort a lot of text messages in discovery. Now, we get much more aggressive discovery options under most of the U.S. civil litigation, civil procedure rules than, than in many countries. So in some ways, I think what will be interesting is how much actually is technically feasible to discover. And, you know, I think we'll be uh, seeing subpoenas going to Zoom, and we'll see uh, people trying to get what they can from the, the, the sort of communication facilitators, and we'll see how that plays out, you know, what, what's actually there and how much it is uh, proves to be discoverable. Because I do think people sitting at home, I mean, just like for years, people thought, well, if it's on my personal email or my personal text message, that's not that's not how would they ever get that. That's not real. And of course, you know, that comes up. It gets subpoenaed and it either comes off your phone through forensics or, you know, you subpoena the phone carrier and get the call record. But um, so I do think that, in fact, in some ways, the footprints that people are leaving and cons- sort of conspiring with each other right now to leave may actually be greater. Because while you can spot somebody meeting somebody for a beer, people do feel a little bit invincible when they're sitting at home. And I think they feel less, I don't know if it's invincible, but they feel less tethered, right? That the sort of personal loyalty that you feel to somebody may be just corroded a little bit when you don't see them every day. So I actually think a lot of that is going to be interesting to see how how it comes out. But I think we'll see an even greater profusion of various messaging platforms in discovery being the key evidence.
0: And Gavin, do you see the same thing happening in the UK, a likely trend towards seeking to get disclosure of Zoom teams? I mean, I I can't find any call record on Zoom when I've tried to find it, but then uh, I think I've probably not tried very hard. But do you see that trend as well happening here?
1: Yeah, I do. And I I agree with with all that Chris said. I mean, I think the legal tools we have in terms of the court's ability to order disclosure and delivery up and affidavits of explanation of what's been done with information, forensic examination, they will remain the same. But I think we're seeing a technology race that is both the opportunity for wrongdoing and the solution to it. And who wins in any given dispute, I think is a function of one, where the the cops and robbers sides of the technology are, i.e. the technology that allows people to take things, as opposed to the technology that allows people to catch them doing it, where we are with that. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it is about people's ability to understand or misunderstand the limitations of the technology. So lots of the cases... That we've seen over the years have been a sort of step change in people's awareness where an unlucky defendant has come to realize, oh, I didn't realize that they could do that. So, you know, nobody realized for a while that you could get disclosure of BlackBerry messenger records or then it was WhatsApp. Every time someone thinks of a new technology, there's always someone that's going to think, brilliant, no one will ever catch me doing this. And of course you can. So the Zoomification is just the next stage, I think, in that process of what technologically can be captured. And I think, as I understand it, Uh, full disclosure as i've come to understand it since we last spoke about this (laughs) there are ways in zoom that one can capture reports if you're on the right sort of professional account for zoom that i'm sure will be disclosable in due course which will send some people looking in in horror and so those will be new methods i mean i i've always thought that you know, there are always people that I think of the new technological way of doing something. I've often wondered how many team moves have been plotted whilst playing Minecraft or Call of Duty on one's Xbox, because those all have chat functions that I'm sure people have been. I've never seen disclosure of anyone's records of their Call of Duty login, but it is a way of communicating with people. you am going to lick their neck. I think the battleground where this is going to be played out and just to pick up on what Chris said about it's the issue of people using their own devices and their own personal emails. It's going to be played out on a privacy stroke data protection battleground, I think, but writ large, because we're not just talking about bring your own device to work issues where, you know, this is my iPhone, this is my laptop. People are in their own homes dealing with their own possessions. And the question is, what access can you get to that? There are technologies. I don't know if anyone on this session was listening to the Industrial Law Society um, conference session yesterday with um, Jeremias adams Prassel and Abby adams Prassel talking about labour market regulation. And in a slightly different context, Jeremiah was talking about employee monitoring software that people use to measure productivity for home working. And I had a bit of a flick round after listening to that. And there are products on the market that employers can install on their corporate laptops that people are working from home that will video the screens of people. They'll take screenshots from time to time. They'll record their keystrokes. So presumably you can poke them if they fall asleep when they're supposed to be working. It'll show what USBs have been plugged in and what the print records are, all centrally gathered to an employer. So. The sort of 1984 solution is increased workplace monitoring but when that workplace is within the home and that's obviously going to create some tensions of the sort that we've seen anyway around privacy and uh, data and the like and it's going to be interesting to see how those things play out
0: i think Yeah, and i think we're going to come on in a moment to talk about other issues with working and how that affects culturally before we get on to that we cannot do this session without asking you to Briefly tell us what you think, if anything, will be the challenges coming down the road for enforcing covenants across borders in Europe for those of us in the EU with disputes in the UK.
1: Well, I mean, we could have got through this without mentioning the B word at all, but now you've blown it. So uh, as you know Sarah this is a subject that is close to my heart what happens to jurisdiction and choice of law and enforcement in the post Brexit world and as always when speaking on this subject I'm saying I don't really know so just so we're clear I don't really know but I, mean, I feel reasonably relaxed on this issue if nothing else about where we're going to get to on Brexit the intention of both our government and the eu ahead of withdrawal agreement was that we would end up with something that looked like the current brussels regime um brussels recast we are in that position during the transition period till the end of the year and let's face it in the context of 2020 end of the year is ages away anything could happen but at the minute we're still governed by the existing brussels regime till the end of the year What's gonna happen about that? I'm not entirely certain. I'm not sure the extent to which anybody's talking about that in the ongoing deal situation, but there do seem to be plans to deal with what happens if there is no deal. So in earlier in the year, uh, our government, took steps to accede to the Lugano Convention, which is what governs the regime between the EU and the EFTA countries, so Switzerland and Iceland and Norway and others. Um, So it looks like our fallback position, if we don't just take Brussels recast as is, is to sign up to um, Lugano, which is kind of the same. I mean, it's based on the unrecast version of Brussels, so that's a bit like saying I- I'll go back to Windows XP if it's all very well to you. Works fine on my machine. So I, I think the intention is we'll muddle along with something that is is pretty similar. Um, worth noting, of course, that that's not just a matter of uh, of litigation of choice of forum and uh, enforcement of judgments between us and the eu because you think about cases like Samengo, turner and emc and Peta, both of which were uk us jurisdictional challenges but based upon the foothold within the brussels regime given because the defendants were um, um nationals of eu member states so it's potentially a big impact if there are changes but at the minute i think well we've got enough to worry about with Brexit without worrying about that issue, hopefully.
0: <laughs> I feel like that. I feel like we've got enough to worry about with COVID without worrying about Brexit, but um, <laughs> thankfully some people are worrying about that. Moving on to a slightly different topic. So I think one of the really interesting things that we certainly were discussing was the impact of the workplace culture. So both working from home, but also just you know, potentially, even if people who are back in the office, they might not be back, everybody in there together. So we might be seeing a sort of fragmentation of workplace culture and we think that there's probably two main things that come out of that that are relevant to today's discussion. And the first one is what what Joydeep touched on earlier, which is this question about, you know, how do you best retain your talent rather than allowing them to walk out the door in the first place? So rather than becoming really defensive and drafting covenants and enforcing covenants, how do you in fact stop people leaving, the good people, the ones you want to keep? But then the second issue really is, well, should employers be aware of the changing nature of competition is in fact the competitive threat going to be something that's different to what it might have been last year or the year before because of the way people work now and because of people working from home and potentially this idea of the sort of solo worker rather than more collective worker and so we just want to spend the last uh, 15 minutes just exploring these issues but to start off discussing this this issue Beth what do you think about the issue of kind of retaining rather than trying to enforce covenants at the end once it's all gone wrong? And how are we going to do that when people are scattered all over the city in some cases, but actually all over the world in other cases where people have decided to work from their homes in other countries?
3: Yeah, so I think I mean you know it's gone pretty badly wrong if you find yourself in, in a courtroom or in a virtual courtroom trying to enforce some covenants on both sides. Um and I think it's a much better strategy for an employer to take obviously are your sort of one line of defense, but your key line of defense ought to be in you know, creating loyalty, making people want to stay. Obviously you're going to lose some people along the way. Not everyone's going to stay in your business forever, but just having that culture, which, which makes people want to stick around and, and even if they leave makes them not, you know, makes them feel some loyalty to you and therefore not want to sort of wreck your business by taking confidential information or, You know, So I I think just creating that sense of loyalty in that culture is really, really important. Uh, And I think it is harder to do when people are working remotely, um, if everybody's working remotely, or indeed, as you say, if if some people are working in the office and some people aren't, and you have this sort of split, you're, you're never kind of all in one place altogether. So I think you need to make those people feel wanted. You need to make them ensure that you maintain that culture by having regular... Um, and I think it's a challenge which, the, which a lot of employers have been grappling with over the last six months. How do you have successful sort of all company, all firm events, particularly in bigger organisations? How do you make them not strange if you're doing them remotely? How do you sort of create that culture? And I think it's about, you know, leaders leading from the top, talking about the values of the organisation, expressing those values, kind of living those values and having regular Check-ins with employees, making people know that they are important to not doing all your communication by email, you know, having regular phone calls, Zoom chats, whatever that might be, keeping those connections going. And I think it's not totally, doesn't totally work because I think it is much more difficult to create those personal relationships in this kind of forum. I think it's likely there would be more employees who just
0: feel that they have nothing to lose. to bring you in on that point you know there is that question about you know what why were employees there in the first place were they there because of the nice relationships with their colleagues or was it for the work and if you take those daily interactions away what might be left and what do you think is going to be the challenge for employers in this context and do you think we will see a sort of fragmentation people kind of going off because they don't have that relationship anymore that was maybe what was keeping them there
4: you know, Sarah, there's a great line in the musical Hamilton where uh, Alexander Hamilton asks uh, Aaron Burr, um, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? And I think this is um, the precise situation that employers and employees are having to grapple with at this particular point in time. The change that is happening in organisations is something that has been forced globally at a, a remarkable speed. There was a really slow, a really rapid lead up to that transition. It was not the kind of change management exercise that any anyone would counsel a client to introduce if you're talking about the introduction of change in their organisation. However, the flow on effect of that has seen a lot of employers come unstuck at the core of their value proposition. So what they've tried to do in the majority of instances is really try to replicate uh, what they were doing previously, i.e. the notions of we'll still meet, we'll still kind of try to manage workload in this particular way, we'll use technology to, to, to do certain things. And that's fine, and you can understand where that thinking comes from. But the problem with that approach is that you're not grappling with the biggest challenge that employees are facing at the moment, which is the loss of a sense of identity. So I think you know, Gavin was making the point earlier that this blending of work and home life Um, And and sure, we can talk about it, and and I think everyone's almost a bit blasé about that, but it's actually a really serious issue because it means that those points of routine, those points of connectivity that an individual worker has with their colleagues, with their leadership, even with their physical place of work, where they get their coffee, the people that they interact with, who they might not necessarily work with that closely, the, the fun activities that happen, personalities that you get to know and that you get to blend in with or indeed the people who you clash with these things have all just disappeared and and the attempts to try to replicate that through technology are often more embarrassing than anything else so employers have got to understand that their employees are probably really challenged around their sense of identity what is when they say that they work for xyz organization what does that even mean to them anymore Because they're not going to work at XYZ, they are hardly interacting in person with people from XYZ, their their leadership are talking to them from XYZ, you know, in casual clothes and in the same way that they're talking to thousands of people on a very scheduled basis. All of these things have a huge impact. And I think the other thing that's of critical importance for employers is that don't underestimate the expectation that your employees have around matters such as career progression for them. I see a lot of organisations who have fallen into the trap of thinking, well, everyone should know that we're in the middle of a pandemic. Everyone should know that there are far bigger issues of concern for the world at the moment than someone getting a pay rise or having an appraisal or whatever else it might be. But for a lot of individuals, if not the majority of individuals, these things are actually really important to them. They still have bills to pay. They still have livelihoods. Um, they had expectations around what you know, 2020 might have held for them in terms of their career, their lives, etc. And employers are not, in my experience, having critical conversations uh, with their people about these kinds of issues. Uh, checking in with people about how they're feeling at a generic level from a mental health point of view is all well and good. But you've got to start grappling with some of those expectations that people might have had so that you as an employer can understand where might we, even though it's not necessarily our fault, where might we be falling short of meeting people's expectations when it comes to that, the core of our value proposition as an employer. So there's a lot of work for employers to do, and I don't think it's helped by ongoing uncertainty, but what's likely to happen and to that the earlier point is that this is going to be a festering sore for a lot of employees, and because you're not seeing those looks on faces, you're not reading the body language, you're not hearing the Hushed conversations that they're they having with co-workers, which might give you insights as to uh, what they're feeling at any particular point in time. The moment there's a turn in the market and the opportunities improve in terms of leaving, that's when that's when they will execute on that. And and you're not going to get much chance to to recover because you'll be inhibited.
0: So that brings in an interesting point because you know you said the moment there's that opportunity and effectively like someone comes knocking to get them, and and I appreciate that for a number of industries that is exactly what will happen. But I think what maybe have seen over the last few months is that where there has been movement is potentially people leaving to set up on their own. So that's a slightly different question to someone waiting for someone to come in, to come along and poach them and then be much more inclined to go. And Chris, I want to just bring you in at this point. You know, Do you think that employers see a risk of what they thought was a threat, which was that Coca-Cola thought Pepsi would come along and poach their best recipe developer? Um, but actually, that's not the threat. In fact, for a lot of industries and a lot of businesses, the threat is that... The person sitting at home will realize that they don't need colleagues anymore, In that they're quite happy working autonomously, and that they might go off and do that as a permanent long-term venture.
2: We are seeing more of this already, where people, the experience of working at home for an extended period of time, essentially by themselves at their kitchen table or wherever, has persuaded people either rightly or wrongly, they may, it may be a reality or it may be an illusion that I don't need the the, the framework of the company around me. I can do everything I do every day on my own with a computer and an iPhone and a decent uh, Wi-Fi connection, and I can afford all that myself. Why am I, you know, if, I, if I'm earning a commission, why am I giving so much to the house and compared to what I keep for myself? I think I can do this on my own. And now some people may be deluding themselves about how much support they actually get from the company or the company's you know, goodwill and name recognition in the marketplace. But especially in some service industries for others, they may not be wrong, right? I mean, they may be making an accurate assessment that, wow, I, I think I can do this myself. And I do seem to be getting a lot done. And, and maybe they're riding on a lot of kind of personal goodwill and reputation that that they themselves have built up over the course of their career, where this is perhaps more viable for some of the more senior people. So I think that's where we may see the real threat on this is the people that are far enough along in their career where they have a lot of goodwill, whether it's been sort of, quote, appropriated from the company or just built up over time across a 30-year career. A lot of those folks may be viable to go off on their own and say, "You you know, I don't need to train young people, which is harder to do remotely, and I don't need all the networking that I might do in person, I can do the whole thing remote. And that's a different kind of challenge when you're enforcing a non-compete, because in certain ways, that's a more sympathetic defendant. You're looking to crush the poor person who's, you know, Joe Smith, and as, you know, really a one-person shop, it's not like somebody who's backed by a very large company also.
0: Gavin, do you see that same i suppose potential development in the uk and also to that litigation dynamic do you see the uk courts being more sympathetic to someone who's starting up by themselves compared to someone who is backed by a massive multinational for example
1: yeah i do i mean first of all i think there probably is more risk this year of the someone setting up to go it alone just because i mean although we haven't seen it play out yet i think people will have been sitting at home thinking, do I really need to be doing things the way that I've been doing them for years and years? And also the fact that one is at home on one's own doing work, you tend to forget the benefit that you get, as Chris said of the brand recognition and the corporate support and all the rest of it. So I think there probably will be more of that. I think it's going to shift some arguments to first of all, some slightly different questions about, well, what's competing. And what's a competitive threat, both in terms of type of things that individuals are doing, albeit with perhaps the old employer's clients, but doing something slightly different? Is it competing? And there's always that sort of David and Goliath. Does David compete with the Goliath issue of the small startup that says, well, I'm not really competing because I'm tiny and you're huge. I mean, that's the size issue isn't really the answer to the competition question, but it does get raised quite a lot in cases. Will they get a more sympathetic hearing? I think in principle yes if one looks at discretion to enforce a covenant the impact on livelihood is probably going to be greater from someone that's going it alone than someone that knows they're being paid by the old employer's um, main competitor and it's no skin off their nose. How How far that sympathy goes I think depends on how egregious the breach is and what sort of activities they've been Leading up to it, the sort of things that go into the blend. But undoubtedly, I agree with Chris, it's going to be a, a more sympathetic defendant in mm-hmm. principle.
2: This might, might be an interesting point to address Mike Lampert's question that he put out, that a self-executing covenant, such as you compete, you lose your stock option or, or you you forfeit certain deferred compensation that may help take some of the edge off of David versus Goliath so you don't have to, so we can say, Your Honor, we're not trying to put him out of business. He can go into business. Best of luck to him on that but he's not walking away with the deferred compensation that we had, we had sort of set up here on the condition of non-competition and then use that to fund himself to try to take away our business. And I think it's easier for a judge to say you're forfeiting this, or you're not going to get that as opposed to injunctively shutting down an individual who's, who's on his or her own. So I think to the extent that's where Mike's question was going, I, I think it might be spot on, especially in these independent competition scenarios.
0: Yeah, thank you and I think you know one of the things that we were discussing earlier before we uh, came on this panel was just that idea that you know if you're sitting alone you might, things that either have um, really kept you there and you know you maybe thought that the main reason that you didn't want to leave because you really like the people and then you realise that you don't see them for six months on end and potentially another six months and you think well actually are they really that important to my fulfilment, my happiness. So I want to just turn back to Joy Deep and just ask you how you think employers can protect against that potential damaging impact of work from home or less regular working in the office Um, and sort of a few key things that you think employers can actually do in practice to protect against these threats and these issues that we've discussed they might be facing.
4: Yeah I think Sarah the point that you made before just then around the, the epiphanies that people are going to have, employers need to expect that that's going to happen I mean, these are unprecedented times. Uh, we, we know that we're dealing with things globally and domestically that haven't been dealt with before. It's understandable that for a lot of people and organisations that will cause them to, to rethink a whole heap of things about their life, including where they're working, why they're working there and what's their raison d'etre of, you know, of their employment relationship from their perspective. I think the critical issue for employers and my guidance to to the clients I'm working with on on these issues at the moment is, firstly, you've got to focus on reinventing the connection. You're not going to be able to build a a culture from scratch in in this current environment. But what you can focus on is reinventing the way in which you as an organisation connect with your employees. And then what are going to be the hallmarks of that connection? What are going to be the things that you just simply cannot do? but employees will expect that you might be trying to do still. And how are you then, which brings me to the second point, going to communicate around it? So you reinvent the connection and you focus on communication. Employers, I think, are still under-communicating about a lot of things. A lot of assumptions being made about employees should be aware uh, of of the circumstances and, therefore, their expectations should be moderated. And I think that the other thing that I would encourage all employers to do is don't... Overplay the employee morale card. A lot of organisations are almost too fixated on that particular point. And in many instances, what I think employees are looking for is they want to see strong leadership, and they want to see their leadership focused on the success of their employing organisation. That is actually one of the most inspiring things for people at a time of uncertainty, even if it, you know, they're not necessarily being communicated with, even if their careers halt, if they are on hold. If they're working for an organisation where they see the leadership of that organisation completely focused on making the organisation a success, notwithstanding all of the challenges, that's going to lead to inspiration that employees will, will bank. And obviously there are variables in terms of when that might be crystallised but organisations shouldn't be overplaying and overemphasising the morale and, and culture cut at the expense of focusing on business success. So there, there are a couple of things which I think employers should, should think about, but you know everyone's going to be differently placed and everyone's going to have their own challenges and it's never easy.
0: Thank you very much. That brings us to the end of our discussion and I would like to thank all of the brilliant panellists for your contributions, for your thoughts, um, and we hope to see you at our next session.